You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Well, good morning. Good to see you guys here today. If you've got your Bibles, let's go to Genesis chapter 1. We've been hearing a lot of politicians share their vision for America lately. And uh, I want us to spend the next few weeks really uh, diving into the Word of God and, and, and especially on some issues that I think are um, not really talked about uh, as much in this election season. And I want us to really hone in on what we think and see from God's Word, what God's vision for our culture needs to be. And I would ask you this question, does God's vision for culture shape your values or does your political view shape your God? Because I think a lot of people who would call themselves a Christian have allowed their political views to shape what they believe about God. And then that leads them to take various positions, uh, political positions, and even moral positions uh, that may or may not be accepted by our culture. But most of the time, they are accepted at the neglect of what God's word says. And so as we look at this over the next few weeks, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for or anything like that. I, I, I want to talk about some issues that are very divisive in our culture today, hoping and, and help, hopefully equipping you to step into that voter's booth, making a decision that will reflect what you believe in your heart, uh, God teaches and God says about these issues. Because we live in the greatest country the world has ever seen. And we have the ability as American citizens to be able to vote for uh, our leaders. And so when we look at our current um, selection, um, it should be difficult this year for you. You should be wrestling with this. Um, it's like never before, this is one of those things where if you're just you know, decided and boom and gone and you're not watching the news, um, it's time to engage. It's time to think through all of these issues. It's time to think through clearly what a biblical conviction would lead you to do. And it's not just the presidential election, it's all the other people that we get to elect in the office this November. And so it's important that God's word doesn't just influence your vote. God's word actually should formulate your vote. And so we look at it in this way. We understand that there are many things I could talk about, but there's three things that I felt like God led me to talk about that I think are, are important. And, and we're going to talk about sexuality, and we're going to talk about that today. Next week, we're going to talk about abortion. And then week three, we're going to talk about racism. And uh, I believe these are very uh, divisive issues, uh, issues that candidates take a firm stance on. And I think as Christians, as people who call themselves followers of Jesus, uh, we need to be informed from a biblical standpoint. And some of you are going to be reminded, some of you may be newer to the faith, uh, maybe not understand why. Uh, others of you, I think, will be challenged. What, what I think we've seen um, over the last, uh, I don't know, several years is, is we've seen a rise in social justice issues, which is a great thing, led by a lot of Christian evangelicals. So it's, it's one of these things where, uh, to the forefront now, sex trafficking has been, you know, some awareness, and, and uh, I think this is incredible. Clean water, hunger, all these social justice issues that, by and large, a lot of Christians are pushing, and, and, and we are, as a church, celebrating, should celebrate. These are great things. 
But I think we also have to notice, and Platt talks about this in his book, Counterculture, he talks about how even while we see a rise of some cultural issues being risen and applauded, we also see that there are some issues where we as Christians don't get applauded, we don't get accepted by culture, and so we, we tend to shy away from those topics. So issues like abortion and the right to life, issues like gay marriage, issues like even racism sometimes, as, as, as our culture views it and sees it, we're not quite equipped or maybe we don't feel like we should be engaging in that conversation. We don't wanna engage. And so I think it's important that we not only champion those who would be called to, to, to minister to those in the sex trafficking industry, uh, clean water, all of these great things. We also, as believers, need to have a voice into these areas as well. There are three books that really have influenced me in this series, um, and so I encourage you to read them. I encourage you to uh, check them out. One of them is David Platt's book, Counterculture. Uh, one is uh, Dr. Albert Moore's book, We Cannot Be Silent. Great book on the issue at hand that I'm going to talk about today. And then finally, uh, Russell Moore's book, Onward. All in our cafe today, I encourage you to check out those resources and um, use them to grow. I think as we jump into today, I think we have to realize that when it comes to sexuality, the church in America is facing a great challenge, a set of challenges that we haven't had to face in previous generations. We're facing the redefinition of marriage, a redefinition of the family, and essentially a redefinition of sexuality in general. For the generations, the church has been seen as really the benchmark for right and wrong. In other words, really culture and even politicians would come to the church and church leaders and, and really glean from them what is right and what is wrong. But we've seen a shift in that over the last several years. And now we are seen as the church as not only um, someone who maybe not understand morality, but we and our views are in fact seen as either harmful to society or judgmental, judgmental towards society. And so we find ourselves in a not so great place. We find ourselves in a very challenging place as a church. Just uh, two weeks ago, October 6th, um, in Time Magazine, there was an article entitled, Top Evangelical College Group to Dismiss Employees Who Support Gay Marriage. So this is going to be a huge deal if you haven't read it yet or seen it. Huge legal battles are going to ensue from this. And uh, essentially, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship said that if you're going to work for us, then you, as a Christian organization, you're going to have to abide by our understanding of a biblical marriage. And so they set it forth. It was like a two-year process. It was really a very strategic and, and well-thought-out process. Do some research and look it up. I think it'll help you, especially if you're a business owner. But they did it really well. And so if you don't believe in biblical marriage, uh, then you've, you've got two weeks, and uh, we're going to help you find another place of employment, but, but you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here kind of mentality. And, and, and I applaud them for that stance as a Christian organization. Their vision, their values, their beliefs all inform that system. I think it's important for us to wrestle with because I think uh, the Pew Research Center shows us a sobering statistic. Their research says that one in four evangelicals supports gay marriage. One in four. See the room here today? You can do the math of how many people um, that perhaps 
think that gay marriage is, is okay. That's more than double the support from 10 years ago. So just even in the last 10 years, Americans, especially even in the church, have, have really doubled in the size of who would support same-sex marriage. And listen to this, nearly half of all millennials believe that gay marriage is okay. So anyone 35 and younger essentially are in the millennial generation, the largest generation America's ever seen, larger than the boomer, boomer generation, uh, believe and support, 50%, over 50% believe that it's okay. So it's a big issue. It's a huge issue. Not to mention the gender identity crisis that's sweeping across America over the last few years. Listen to this, the American Psychological Association, they define a person's sex as a person's biological status that is characterized by male parts and female parts. Makes sense to us. But then they define gender as the attitudes, feelings, and the behaviors that a given culture associates with a person's biological sex. Translation, if you missed that. Gender is basically and essentially anything that the culture decides it to be. This is a problem. As a result of this influence, public school teachers around the country are being taught how they can create a gender, a gender neutral environment. No longer, you know, moving in this direction, no longer can we say, welcome boys and girls. We might offend an eight-year-old. In 2013, California became the first state to require that public schools allow transgender students to use bathrooms and play on sports teams that correspond with their personal gender identities. It's a huge problem. Now, now why are young boys and girls confused? Let me give you an example. So a young girl who likes to wear camo and sit in a deer stand is told that girls don't do that. She's told that girls play with dolls. Perhaps that her mother's not in her life, maybe her father's not in her life, so she hasn't seen the picture. Maybe mom and dad aren't really talking to her about what it, what it looks like to be a girl, what it looks like you know, for boys to be boys. And then she watches TV seven hours a day, and she looks at her phone if she has a cell phone, and essentially by the time kids are in third or fourth grade now, they're getting them, she looks at it over 500 times a day. And what is she looking at and what is she watching when she pulls up this media? She's seeing a culture that celebrates a man who would have surgery to become a woman. She sees talk shows and television shows that laugh about sex and men having sex with, with other men. And, and she sees you know, men and women living together. She sees homosexual relationships in front of her, her life constantly. Women living with women, having relationships, talk shows that talk about, are you a boy or are you a girl? When did you find out that even though you were born a male, that you need to be a, a, a female? When did this happen for you? How did you understand it? You see, my point is that, that culture is confusing kids. It's not God's word. When we look at God's word, you can, as a woman, wear camo and sit in a deer stand for the glory of God still be a godly woman, right? God does not define, you know, biblical womanhood based on, you know, your camouflage or what you choose to shoot from a tree stand, right? 
So it's culture that's dictating and changing and confusing. We have to be aware of that. We've got to understand that we have created the recipe for kids to be confused. You may think all this stuff is in California. We don't have to deal with it um, here in East Tennessee. Granted, East Tennessee is probably five or ten years you know, behind culture and other states. But make no mistake about it, it, it's here. April of this past year in the state of Tennessee, a bill was created by Susan Lynn that would have required all students in public schools and university to use bathrooms and locker rooms that matched their gender at birth. But she pulled the bill because she knew she was about to be sued and a huge deal was going to be made of it. So essentially her words were, we're going to reformulate it, kind of put it back together with the hopes of putting it back out there. But at this point, we're unsure. We don't know what is going to happen. And so I want our understanding of the issue to to grow deeper as a church and as Christians so that we can vote our principles and also confront our culture in a loving way. And to do that, we have to look to the gospel. And so we start in Genesis chapter one, verse one, with the gospel, all right? So let's look at it. Verse one of God's word says, in the beginning, what's the next word? God. Now, in the first few words of the Bible, everything about our belief system begins to formulate. In the beginning, God. There is a God. We start with the gospel there. We don't start with Christmas when we talk about the gospel. The good news of the gospel starts in Genesis 1, verse 1. There is a God, and it says that he created the heavens and the earth. So there is a God and he created everything. We also know that this God who created is also our judge. We read a few weeks ago in 1 Peter 4, 5, but says this, but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So he he is God, he is creator, and he is judge. Secondly, we see that God creates man and woman. Look at verse 27. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now listen, unlike the rest of creation, God created men and women in the image of God. This is a big deal. This is formulating our belief system right before our eyes. That creator God would create his humanity to have and bear his image. We are image bearers of our creator. Now, that means so much. And over the next few weeks, we're gonna see just how important being an image bearer of God really truly is and how that one piece of theology transforms us as followers of Christ and transforms all of our political views, that we are all image bearers of our creator. Platt says, our bodies have been created not just by God, our bodies have been created for God. This culture screams at every turn, please your body, please your body, do what feels right. But the Bible shouts at every turn, please God, please God, please God, please God with your body. God made men and women. He gives us the gift of sexuality here as he is creating male and female. The gift of sexuality is that there are two sexes, male and female. 
Thirdly, God determines what is right and what is wrong. He determines what is good and what is evil based upon his holy character. Flip to probably the next page in chapter 2, verse 16 in your Bible. Adam and Eve are created. They're given the Garden of Eden. And it says, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Verse 17, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Here in this text, God says, what is good and what is evil? What is right and what is wrong? As our creator and as a just creator, he shows us and tells us what is right and what is wrong. Now, why is it a big deal that Adam and Eve not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? What's so wrong with knowing good and evil? But the meaning of this act was not simply that they would know good and evil. The meaning is that they would determine good and evil for themselves despite what God says. And that in and of itself is what Adam and Eve fell and it's what you and I struggle with even today. We struggle with this battle. God says this is right. God says this is wrong. But the battle and the, the result of the fall is that we want to determine what is right. We want to determine what is wrong despite what God says. In other words, eating from this tree meant that they were rejecting God. It meant that they were rejecting him as the one who determines what is good and evil, and they assume authority for themselves. And that's exactly what our culture is doing. Folks, that's exactly what you and I have done in our own life. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, God creates marriage. It says this, it says that a woman, and he says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The man leaves his father and mother. The woman leaves her father and mother. And a man is united with a woman in this covenant relationship. And in this covenant relationship, the two shall become one flesh. Yes, that is a physical union, but it's also a spiritual union. Here we see that marriage is created for a male and a female who are in the confines of this covenant relationship that we call Marriage. Sex is not a mechanical act. It is a relational bond, a physical union between a man and a woman who are committed to each other in marriage. According to God, marriage is the one place that God says is the right place for sexual union to be enjoyed. And God condemns any other sexual activity outside of that relationship. Let me give you some examples here. We've, we see that God is good first. God is good. In, in, in verse 31 of chapter 1, he says that he created all of this and he said it was very good. That means male and female, very good. Garden, very good. Marriage, very good. Sex, very good. Praise God. Hallelujah, right? According to his plan, it is a wonderful thing. But then in Genesis chapter 3, turn the page again. Genesis 3, we see what we call the fall. This is when Adam and Eve sin, and sin enters the world. And we see that Adam and Eve are eating from the tree that they were told not to eat from. And as a result, 
there are several consequences. In chapter three, verse 16, it says that Eve's desire, the woman's desire, would be to rule her husband. And so we see that in marriages today. We also see that women will experience pain in childbirth. We see here that Adam's leadership will be or tend to be harsh. Adam's leadership will also experience painful toil as he works and, and, and grinds out the land by the sweat of his brow. And so this is a result. Thorns and thistles now produced from the earth and a host of other things that cause us to be separated from God. You and I are each sinners. We want to please our own desires. We want to go our own way. We want to do what we feel is the right thing to do and dismiss God's idea for our life and especially in the area of sex. And so if he is our creator, if he created our bodies, if he created sex himself, which we believe he has and did, then in his love, he shows us how to best use our body. Number one, to be able to enjoy it. And then secondly, to help us stay away from the pain and the turmoil that using sex in an appropriate way brings into our life. So there are there, there are guardrails that he shows us, and then he also shows us the plan that's going to bring ultimate satisfaction as far as our bodies are concerned. And so let me list a few here. He shows us ways that sex can destroy our life. A few things I'm just, you might jot down. Leviticus 19.29, he says sexual prostitution is harmful. It is a sin. It's to be condemned. He says in Deuteronomy 22 that sexual violence is a sin. And we must avoid, we must, we, we must stay away from. He says in Leviticus 18.23, he commands us not to have sex with animals. He commands in Leviticus 18.6 not to have sex with relatives. Maybe a little bit more important in Tennessee, I don't know. <laughs> but all of these things in our culture, people most likely would agree with. Thumbs up. Animals, yep, don't do that. Relatives, don't do that. Right? All that list everybody's good with. Starts getting a little tense when we get to the second point here. God also prohibits sex between a man and a woman who are not married. The Bible calls this adultery. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, God says, you shall not commit adultery. Now, a lot of people think adultery is when you're married and one of the people who are, are, are married has sex with somebody else, they commit adultery. Yes, that is adultery, but in fact, adultery is any time any one of us has sex with someone who is not our wife or someone who is not our husband. So when we understand it from a biblical perspective, now the, the, the tides turn a little bit here. Now the judgmental finger pointing of the guy who cheated on his wife it's not so easy when we understand that perhaps some of us in the room committed adultery as well. That's why 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price so glorify God in your body. He says sexual immorality is the worst. You sin against your own body. It's harmful to your own body. The Holy Spirit lives within you. Protect your own body. Protect the Spirit of God that is within you, thereby glorifying God 
with your body. Thirdly, God also prohibits sex between a man and a man and a woman and a woman. Homosexuality, yes, is a sin. Leviticus 18.22 says, Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Romans chapter 1, verse 26, he says, Women have exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and men who likewise gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passion for one another, committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. It is clear all throughout the Bible Homosexuality is a sin. And then finally, number four, if the room wasn't already tense, Jesus says that even thinking sexual thoughts about someone else is sin. He says in Matthew 5, 28, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, it's easy to judge other people's sins. It it may be easy for some of you in the room to condemn homosexuality, but it's not so easy for you to see the sexual sin in your own life. Christians indulge in sexual activity when they look at pornography, when they watch movies and TV shows that glorify sex, that laugh at, 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 at sex before marriage. And then to make matters worse, I see even evangelical followers of Christ taking their own teenagers and children to watch these movies and to open up Netflix so that their kids can experience it as well. And we wonder why they're confused. We give them the keys to the car to go out and date and hang out at the youngest of ages when they're not prepared, when they've been watching and and, and their minds are filled with, with, with just inappropriate sex all over the place. And we think that a 16-year-old has the self-will to deny his flesh. We rationalize our own sin because we think we need or want sexual freedom ourselves. And if I can just have sex with who I want to have sex with, if if I just want to bring fulfillment through sex myself and I just want to do what I want to do, that's going to bring me happiness But my seminary professor many years ago said, sex is good, but sex is not God. What he meant by that is when we use sex the way that God intended it, it is very, very good. But it is not God. It is not going to bring ultimate fulfillment in your life. It is not going to make you happy. It is not going to satisfy you ultimately. So whether it's a homosexual relationship or, or a premarital sex relationship that you're involved in, the reality is that's not going to bring you intimacy. That's not going to bring you love. That's not going to bring you joy like you think and hope it's going to bring. It will leave you empty. That's why 1 Corinthians 16, 8 says, run, run from it, flee from it. It looks great. It looks tempting. It looks wonderful. But God says, run from it because it's only going to destroy you. This is written to the city of Corinth, the city of Corinth that is sex-crazed. I mean, prostitution is legal, homosexuality is rampant, adultery is everywhere, and he tells to that crowd, just like he tells you and I today, to run from sexual immorality. And so on this point, as followers of Christ, no matter where we're at, we've got to admit our failure, we've got to admit our own personal guilt when it comes to sexual sin 
That's why the gospel message is so important for our culture. That's why we start there. That's why we start there. We don't start with an argument. We don't start with a your view versus my view. Why did we ever think that was gonna work? Why do we ever think that screaming from the pulpit and pounding the pulpit, yelling red face, that people are sinners and die? Why do we ever think that was gonna be helpful? I don't know. Not that we have all the answers today, but I do think a healthy understanding of biblical sexuality and helping our brothers and sisters around the world who struggle with the same sex attraction, who are involved sexually, living together before they're married, involved in sex before they're married, all of this crowd, no matter where they're at, like you and I have to first, we have to admit and confess and repent of our own sin. And at the same time, we take them to the gospel. We take them to the gospel. It's the gospel that transforms. It's the gospel that changes hearts. I don't need to change your political view. I don't need to change what you think about X, Y, or Z. I wanna take you to the gospel. And when you know that there is a God and that he created you in his image, that he is judge, that he loves you, then you Begin to understand who he is. When his spirit comes into your life, now you have the understanding and the, and the ability to take on some of these other issues, but never before, never. A popular f- philosophy in life today is to be true to yourself, right? I mean, millennials are king at this and even some of uh, uh, you know, older adults, you know, just be true to yourself. You gotta be you, man. You be you, and as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, you just gotta be, you just gotta stay true to who you are, right? You hear this all the time. But the problem with that philosophy, stay true to yourself unless it hurts someone, is this, like who determines what hurt is, what harm is? Who determines who's gonna harm, or, or at what point it harms someone else? I mean, I think the sex trafficker in Knoxville could argue that I'm trying to stay true to myself, and as I stay true to who I am, I'm helping this little girl that I stole from the mountains of China who was gonna die anyway. I'm giving her a life and keeping her alive. So at least she's alive today. I'm being true to myself, helping. He might also argue that, hey, I'm helping a host of these other men stay true to themselves by allowing them to indulge their sexual appetite with this little girl. So I'm just being true to myself and what I want to do and, you know, what's, I'm not harming anybody. That, that's actually helping them. Who determines? What that little girl needs to know is that she was created by God. She needs the gospel. She needs to know that she's in the image of God, that God loves her, that God did not create her for sexual exploitation, but that God created her to be able to enjoy the confines of a covenant relationship in marriage where her husband would honor her and love her and cherish her. And all we want to do is argue. Thankfully, the gospel sets forth a vision for culture that is completely different than the culture that we are living in today. Time Magazine article recently put out an article entitled, Infidelity Maybe in Our Genes. <laughs> so the whole article was about how there's possibly a gene for adultery. And so we're doing some testing. So the end of it is like when we, if we discover that there's a gene, then ultimately if your philosophy is be true to yourself, just be true to yourself, 
and I have the adultery gene, then guess what? To be true to myself, I've got to cheat on you, honey. I'm sorry. I got the gene, right? That changes premarital counseling, doesn't it? It's like, hey, guys, thanks for coming, you know, to the counseling today. Uh, before we get started, we're going to need you to pee in a cup. <laughs> we're going to have to take your genetic code and come back in a few weeks and, hey, did you guys end up getting married? Well, you know, the good news is he didn't have the adultery gene. Well, great. That's wonderful. And she says, well, you know, he didn't have the gay gene. So that was good, too. So did you get married? No, we didn't get married. Why not, man? Why didn't you marry her? Well, she had the backseat driver gene. <laughs> and I said, no way, man. I'm not getting involved in that. Not going there. Not going there. Every man in the room married a woman with that gene, didn't we? So you see how ridiculous it, it, it is. If they come up with a gay gene, whatever. here's the reality. I don't care what gene they say I have or what gene they, they find in whatever person. Just because I have a gene or a propensity towards a sin doesn't mean I have to act upon that sin. Well, that, she got it. She got it. I don't know if anybody else got it. <laughs> but this is the deal. Like if you have a same-sex attraction that you're struggling with or that you experience, it doesn't mean you have to act on that to be who you are. Because the reality is our culture says that we're defined by our sexuality. In other words, who we want to have sex with defines us, and it's all about sex. But that's not what defines us. Just like adultery doesn't define you if that's in your past. Homosexuality doesn't define you if you're struggling with that. If you're struggling with, am I a man or am I a woman, that doesn't define you. Sex is a very small part of life, and yet our culture wants it to make all about life. Some of us claim to be a Christian, but you don't believe some of the things we're sharing today. It comes down to your view of Scripture. It comes down to your understanding of the gospel, because the reality is if you affirm gay marriage, you have to admit that, that you don't believe in Scripture, or like a lot of other pastors will do, they'll say, well, that word doesn't mean this anymore. That was referring to that. And, and uh, oh, when it says homosexuals in the Old Testament, that means the guys that, that weren't really homosexuals, but that they were acting in that way. But real homosexuals that were born that way, it's okay for them to be true to them. So, I mean, you can do the biblical gymnastics if you want to, but in order to affirm gay marriage, you have to deny the gospel. Plain and simple. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the way in which that Satan tempts Adam and Eve is the same way that he tempts us today. He says, did God really say if you eat from that tree, you're going to die? Did he really say that? You see, the enemy wants you to question the word of God. He wants you to question the word of the Bible. He, he wants you to question what God says. And so then when we begin to question it and, oh, maybe it doesn't mean that, or maybe, maybe this means this, and, and, and as we doubt God's word, as we call him into question, then we become the creator. We create the culture. We create a belief system. We create what is right and what is wrong. We redefine the very things that God himself created. But the glorious thing about the gospel message is redemption. And redemption started in the garden. It, 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 it came to fruition on Christmas. And then in the cross, we see the picture of what it is. 
But in the empty tomb, we see the resolution that we are in fact saved and redeemed and we have hope. So no matter what sexual sin you've experienced or no matter what you're struggling with today, the hope for you and I is that in and through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, by placing our faith in him, he redeems us, he forgives us, he gives us new desires, he changes our desires, he sets our feet on solid ground, he gives us the hope of heaven, and he allows us to truly experience life to the fullest today. Prior to him, life to the fullest meant a lot of sex with different people. With Jesus, we understand that that's garbage. True life and and, and, and true happiness are never separated from Jesus in the cross and the empty grave. So what do we do with this? How are we as believers to, to be challenged or to be changed? And what should we really begin to do with this? Well, a few points today. The first thing I would say is that, first and foremost, you must repent of your own sexual sin. Repent of your own sexual sin. Stop pointing the finger and start realizing that there is sin in our own past, in our own life, that we better be sure we are repent, repenting from. You know, the, the pornography industry is a billion-dollar industry. And the reality is many men in the room are diving into that pool of, of sin, Repenting from our own sin, turning from those desires and giving our life to Christ on a daily basis of committing to him will ultimately allow our hearts to be ready to share the gospel with others and to have a conviction about these things. Secondly, I would say we pray for compassion for the lost and a spiritual awakening to come. So we're actively praying with compassion for compassion for those who are separated from God and, and we're also praying that God would spiritually send an awakening, that, that we would experience a revival, an awakening in our land, and in our own personal hearts, in our own church, and our own city, that the Holy Spirit would sweep across this nation in a way that he never has. I believe in the name of Jesus that can still happen. Thirdly, we remember that we were once separated from God. The reason why people have a different political view or see these things differently from you, perhaps they're separated from God. Perhaps they don't have the Holy Spirit in their life. Perhaps they're darkened by their own sin in their life. They're being confused by the enemy. And so we see them as such. We don't see them as just somebody we want to argue with to to prove our point. We see them in such a way that we remember that, hey, one time I was separated from God. and, and, And what I thought and what I did was totally contrary to the word of God. In fact, even though I am a believer, I still have some crazy thoughts and I do some crazy things, right? So I was separated from God. So, so that helps me view other people in that light. I was lost, right? I was, one, I was one time lost. I was a fish once. When Jesus says, I'm gonna make you a fisher of men, I was a, I was a fish and, and, and somebody you know, influenced me to understand the gospel. And so we too have to have that same mentality. Share the gospel with these people. We take him to Genesis 1. There is a God. He sent his son Jesus. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave. This is the gospel message, the good news that we have to share. Instead of entering the argument, enter a gospel conversation. Next, number four, I would say we care for those in the LGBT community. So we genuinely care for them. We don't give them the Heisman and stiff arm them, stay away from me, stay away from kids, stay away from everything in my life. No, we, we care for them. 
I don't know what we ever thought the standing on the side of the road holding hateful signs was ever going to do for those for, for people that are dealing with this. I, I don't know. I don't know what we ever ever thought was going to actually change culture, but but what we've tried hasn't worked. In fact, the last 20 years, we've seen more changes in how culture views marriage and family than we've seen in the 50 previous years. So what we've done hasn't worked. And I I just think, I just have a conviction that if we'll act like Jesus and live like him, that things will work out. And that means that we have to care for people who are separated from God, who don't think like we think, don't care about the things we care about. And then finally, we grow in our understanding of biblical manhood and womanhood. I encourage people to read books all the time. I, I think it's important. I think if you want to be a leader, you have to be a reader. We make our, our kids read every day for 20 minutes. That doesn't always work, <laughs> but that's the hope. Some of you say, man, I don't read, I don't like to read, and uh, I don't have enough time to read. I mean, that's a great excuse, good for you, but it's never going to help you change, right? As long as you believe that lie, you're never going to change. Like things aren't going to grow. Like you have to read the Word of God. You've got to read some book to to equip yourself and, and, and to be encouraged. Because when our thoughts are changed, then our minds and our spirits begin to follow. But it starts with our minds. And so the Holy Spirit transforms our minds as we put His truth in it. And so we've got to educate ourselves. We've got to grow in this area. And not only that, but we've got to teach our kids, our own children, what it means to be a man in the eyes of God, what it means to be a woman in the eyes of God. Wear camo, ladies, if you want to. Shoot deer if you want to. That's not what God defines as a woman, yay or nay. So what does he say? And and so cbmw.org is a great resource. TheGospelCoalition.org is a great resource. Our cafe has great resources. Like, our, our, our problem is not content. We've got content everywhere. If you're a partner at FC, you've got access to Right Now Media, thousands of Bible studies on, on all of these issues. Content is at your fingertips. But the problem is we've got people who aren't engaging themselves in discipleship, not actively seeking to grow. Sometimes I hear people say, I want more, I want more, I want more. And it's almost like you want me to like cook you a steak dinner and like, you know, force feed you something. It's like, if you want more, this is, this is why God talks about our private personal devotion time with him. And praise God, if you've got the ability to read, he's given you that ability to grow and feed yourself. And so as we close today, we're keeping all of this in mind. We, we recognize that we're the people of God. We're called to be the light and the salt in this culture, caring for people, sharing the gospel with them, living with them and amongst them and influencing them towards the cross of Jesus. And so change in America happens when you and I change. And so I want to close today with with prayer, just seeking the the heart of God, confessing our own sin, praying for our country, praying for this election. Many of you, I'm sure, have loved ones and friends dealing with the same 
uh, traction. Can we pray for them today? Can we lift them up that, that God would send revival right here, right here in this place, in this city, that we would see changes in the right way take place. And so to do that, I want to ask you to get a little bit uncomfortable. Either come forward and pray, or maybe just at your seat, just kneel down and pray. I know a little bit different. Some of you may not be dressed for that, so I get that. Some of you have bad knees. I understand all that. But I do, for those of you that can and would, encourage you to come forward and pray. Pray at your seat. Kneel down on the ground before a holy God. And uh, as you move in that direction, James is going to play prayer, piano, music behind us. And it's going to be awesome. So just join me. I'll give you a moment to pray on your own. for our church pray for our country pray for our school systems teachers pray that each of us would have faith conversations about the gospel recognizing that it's always difficult but to this we were called. Lord Jesus, we bow before you just in humility, confessing our own sin, confessing our own sexual sin, God. Lord, we, we ask that you would equip us and grow us and allow us to be everything you've called us to be. We are the hope of the world. Help us to walk in that truth, to walk in that light, to be encouraged by that, to be blessed by that, God, that the Holy Spirit of God is living within us, empowering our conversations, empowering our daily walk, overcoming our own sin, overcoming our own struggles, that you, God, are with us, you, God, are for us. God, we lift up our nation. May you sweep across this country with a fresh wind and a fresh fire of the Holy Spirit that changes lives. God, we are praying for this election and that your will would be done. And we do confess and, and, and we do know, God, that no matter who is elected, you are sovereign, you are God, you are in control. And Lord, we continue to press forward to build your kingdom here, no matter who's in office. And God, we also lift up our loved ones, those who are struggling and in sin. And we pray, God, that you would plant in their hearts the hope of the gospel. Use us to share that. Use us to bless them in that. Convict them, Lord. Show them your truth. Show them your light. Show them your direction. And Father, we'll give you the praise and glory for it all. 
For it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.